Well, our scripture reading is the exact same passage this morning. Um, it can be found on the first page of your bulletin, but why turn? Um, it's right there. This is the inspired and an inerrant word of God. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Amen. Uh, the fifth century. As early as the fifth century, Christians started to mark the gravestones of their lost loved ones with a Latin phrase. And that Latin phrase was requiescat and pace, which translates into English as rest in peace, abbreviated as R-I-P. The use of that phrase, you know it's widespread today. If you were to go to a cemetery, you'd find a lot of gravestones that still say R-I-P, or rest in peace. Someone, whether they are a Christian or not, and they lose a loved one, it's not uncommon to hear them say or even comment on social media, R-I-P, rest in peace. But its meaning, it's been lost. Originally, when Christians began to use this phrase, they were rooting it in the Bible, specifically in Isaiah chapter 57, verses 1 and 2. And in Isaiah 57, verses 1 and 2, the death of God's people. The death of God's people is described this way. The righteous man, that is the man who has been made righteous by God, the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. That means that when someone who belongs to God, when a child of God dies, he or she is taken away from calamity, taken away from this earth. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. So when a Christian dies, though their body stays temporarily here on earth, their soul goes to be with Jesus. Their soul goes to paradise. They are taken away from calamity. They are taken away from the troubles of this life and they enter into eternal rest. And so we can accurately say, rest in peace. For the Christian, this life is the struggle. For the Christian, this life is as bad as it gets. 
But one day we will all die. And when we die, we will conquer death. And then we will rest in peace. We will enter into eternal rest with God. Now the reason, the reason the Christian will conquer death and rest in peace is that Jesus conquered death. If Jesus didn't conquer death, then Christians will not conquer death. But he did. This is what we mark on Easter Sunday. This is what we celebrate every Sunday, but especially on Easter Sunday. So I've got just two things that I'd like to do in this morning's sermon. Number one is to call your attention to the resurrection, and I'm sure you're not surprised by that. Number one, to call your attention to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then number two, to call you to believe it. Not just to hear it, not just to think about it, but to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. So before we go any further, let's pray together. Let's ask God to help us. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. Those of us who are here and are believers, we thank you for revealing yourself to us for opening our eyes, for opening our ears to hear and to see who you are and what you've done. We ask you to do that again today, that you would help us to see things we would otherwise not see and to understand that which we would not otherwise understand. Help us, God. For those who are here that don't believe, we pray that you would cause them to believe. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you're using one of our church Bibles, which you're free to take with you today if you don't own your own Bible, uh, you'll find today's text on page 904. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 19 through 21. Let me read you the text for the third time today. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Just three verses today. We'll start with the facts of verse 20. There are some facts in verse 20. And then we'll look at the explanation in verse 21. And then we'll go back to the beginning and look at the what if of verse 19. So the facts of verse 20, the explanation in verse 21, and then the what if if of verse 19. So look with me at verse 20. What are the facts here? 
Paul writes, in fact, and here's the first thing he says, Christ has been raised from the dead. This is a fact. This happened. God the Father raised His Son, Jesus Christ, from the dead. Jesus died on a Friday afternoon. And He would have been buried before 6 p.m. that night. And He was in the tomb all of Friday night. He was in the tomb all day Saturday and into and through Saturday night. And then on the third day, Sunday morning, the first day of the week, Jesus was raised from the dead. Incidentally, that is why we worship every Sunday morning. Because it was on a Sunday morning, the first day of the week, that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, in 2 Kings, way back in the Old Testament, Elisha, he raised someone from the dead. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. In John chapter 11, he raised Lazarus. From the dead. Then in Acts chapter 9, Peter raised Tabitha from the dead. And then in chapter 20, he raised Eutychus. So there are actually a number of instances in your Bible of people being raised from the dead. But, but all of those raisings from the dead were not the same as Christ being raised from the dead. So we don't say Elisha is alive. We don't say Lazarus is alive. But we do say Jesus is alive. So here's the difference. Each of them, Lazarus, Tabitha, Eutychus, they were raised from the dead, but they died again. They all died again. But when Jesus was raised from the dead, He was raised never to die again. He was raised from the dead never to die again, which is what the Bible calls resurrection. We have material bodies and immaterial souls, and when we die a physical death, our bodies and soul are separated. Our bodies remain here on earth, and our souls either go to be where Jesus is or where He isn't. Resurrection is life after that. Resurrection is life after life after death. Resurrection is the reuniting of our body and soul. Resurrection 
is the reuniting of our body and soul. And that's what Paul is talking about when he writes here that Christ has been raised from the dead. And then Paul writes this, more facts in this verse. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So, Christ's resurrection, according to Paul, it it was something. And it was, according to Paul, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits. This is an agricultural analogy. In April, some of you already have, or this time of year, you might plant a a tomato plant. You find a spot that's in the sun, and you dig a hole, you mend the soil, you put in your plant, and you water it. And if things go well in a couple months or so, you walk outside and you find a tomato. And that is, that first tomato, that is your first fruit. And it means something, doesn't it? It means that more tomatoes are on the way. It worked. Good job. More tomatoes are on the way. And it means that those tomatoes will be like that first tomato. So Christ's resurrection was a first fruit, meaning more resurrections are on the way. More resurrections are on the way, and they will be like His resurrection. That's all it means. And who will be resurrected, according to verse 20? Another fact. Who will be resurrected? Those who have fallen asleep. And you probably know that fallen asleep is a metaphor for physical death. The Bible describes Christians who have died as having fallen asleep. It's only temporary, in other words, They have died and their spirits have gone to be with Jesus and their bodies have been laid to rest. They rest in peace. Okay. Let's go back to verse 20 and make sure we understand the facts here. Paul writes, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So here's what Paul is saying Christ has been raised from the dead. And so, one day, Christians also will be raised from the dead. That's the fact of verse 20. Now let's go to his explanation. He gives an explanation. In verse 21. And this answers the question, well, how does this work? Why why is it that the resurrection of Jesus leads to my resurrection? What is the connection here? Why is that not just an isolated event? 
the resurrection of Jesus, the reuniting of his body and soul, why is that a first fruit of every Christian experience that one day we also will be resurrected? So he explains how this works. Verse 21, for, so that's the word that connects these two verses, as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Now that, believe it or not, is some deep theology. These are some deep waters here, and it explains the significance of Christ's resurrection for you and me as Christians. For, this is how it works, by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So what we need to know is that when Christ came, Christ came as a representative, would be a good word to use. When Christ came, he came as a representative. In a minute, we'll look at Romans chapter 5. If you want to stay where you are and flip back to Romans 5, you should do that now. That's where this is explained, where it is taught most clearly. When Jesus came, he came as a representative, or he came as a covenant head. So let me give you an overview of what this means. By a man came death, Paul writes, and by a man comes resurrection. In other words, we will all die because of a man. We're all going to die because of a man. And some of us will be resurrected because of a man. So there is two men being described here. They are the first man and they are the last man. And in Romans 5, we find out that these two men are Adam and Jesus. They are two representatives of humanity. So let's think about Adam first. Adam is the first representative. Remember what it is that you know about Adam. You can read about in the very beginning of your Bible. Adam was in this garden, this perfect paradise that God created, and he was there as a head of humanity, which means that he was in the garden, listen, that he was in the garden representing you. And that's already getting difficult because we're used to electing our representatives. You didn't elect Adam. God elected Adam. Nevertheless, he was really there in the garden as your representative. So obviously, you were not there in the garden. Some of you are a little older here today, but you're not that old. 
you were not there in the garden physically, but you were in the garden in Adam. That's what this teaches. You were not physically standing before the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, but you were standing before the tree in Adam. You may not like that because you know what Adam did. You know how Adam performed in the garden. And you know it didn't go well. But he was there as our representative. That means that what Adam did, you did. When Adam sinned, when he rebelled, he plunged all of us into sin with him because of this teaching. Because he was there as our representative. So Romans 5.12. This is inescapable. In Romans 5.12, we're told that sin came into the world through one man. It's the same thing that Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 15. Sin came into the world through one man. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men because, and what does it say? All sinned. And you say, wait a minute. All sinned? That's not fair. I wasn't there. But you were there. How? In Adam. He was there acting on your behalf. And so we don't like that. If he would have done something great, if he would have obeyed God and done well, then we would, we would appreciate that representative. But Adam, he blew it. He blew it. And because of his sin, sin came into the world. And through sin, death. It's affected every single one of us. We may like to think that if we were there in the garden, not this representative system, but if we were there in the garden, we would have behaved differently. The truth is that Adam was a perfect representative because what Adam did is exactly what you would have done. It's exactly what I would have done. But more importantly, hold on. If you don't like this, if it frustrates you to know that you are suffering the consequences of someone else's actions, and it doesn't feel fair to you or it doesn't feel right to you, I could understand that. That God has set up this representative system where Adam was there representing you and so his sin has affected you in this way. And you don't think that's not right, that's not fair. Well, let's get to the second representative. 
Because if this is not the system that God has created, that God has invented, if this is not the economy of God, of this representation, then we also won't experience the benefit of the second representative, who is Christ. Christ was also in a garden. Christ was also before a tree. The cross is called a tree. Christ is our second representative. He is our second head. 1 Corinthians 11.45 calls him the last Adam. His headship, his representation, it works just like Adam. So what he does, he does on behalf of those whom he represents, namely the church, the people of God. This means Christians who are in Christ, we say. Christians who are in Christ, when Jesus died, we died. When Jesus was buried, we were buried. When Jesus was raised, we were raised. Romans 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him. There it is. He was our representative. When he died, we died. We were crucified with him. Romans 6, 7, and 8. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ... We believe that we will also live with Him. And Paul much more personally says in Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. What's he talking about? He's talking about representation. Christ was His representative. When Christ died, Paul died. Jesus died that I may die. He lived that I might live. He was and he is my representative. He was and is my covenant head. Headship is how Adam got us into this mess, but headship is also how Jesus got us out. That's what Paul is talking about here. Let me read those two verses together again with that background. Verse 20 and 21. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man that is Adam came death, by a man that is Christ has come also the resurrection of the dead. So again, here is what Paul is saying in these verses. 
Christ has been raised from the dead. This is an Easter message Paul is giving. Christ has been raised from the dead. And so, Christians also will one day be raised from the dead. So this would be a really good time to ask the question, are you a Christian? Are you in Christ? Do you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? Just take a second. Because a lot of you just had just reflexes kick in when you heard that. Not necessarily a bad thing. But you just had an answer that came out right away in your mind. But just wait a second. And really think about the question. Do you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? If you do, then you have put your faith in him. You've put your faith in him. And you live for him. Not perfectly, you all know this. But you live for Christ. You live for God. You have put your trust in him. You have put your faith in him because you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. You've done what Romans 10 verses 9 and 10 talk about. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So I'm asking if you're a Christian. I'm asking if, is this you? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, but not Not just that, because anybody can do that. Anybody can mouth certain words. Jesus is Lord. Anybody can say those words, but if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, what? The most fantastic claim of the entire gospel. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, You will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. Do you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? What if you don't? What if you're skeptical? What if you're critical? What if you're... Self-doubting your beliefs. What if you do not believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? Well, I suppose I could rattle off historical evidence for the resurrection. And in years past, 
I've gone into great detail about some of these things. The actual evidence of the resurrection of Christ could say things like, it is indisputable that the tomb in which Jesus was buried, that it ended up empty. There's vast historical evidence that the tomb that Jesus was buried in ended up empty. We can argue over why it was empty or how it became empty, but it's indisputable that it was empty. Or we could talk about the fact that it is indisputable that Jesus' closest followers, of course, including his disciples, that they had very real experience with someone that they believed was the risen Christ, and they were all willing to die based on that belief. That's historical evidence. We could also say that it is indisputable that as a result of the preaching and teaching of those disciples, which centrally taught the resurrection, the Christian church was established and has grown immensely. These are indisputable facts. And maybe if you thought about those long enough, and if there was enough evidence that was put before you, then maybe you would believe in the resurrection. On the flip side, for those of you who are Christians, why do you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? Why do you believe that? Why do you believe that everything that the Bible says is true and is the word of God? Why do you believe that? As Christians today, we have not seen the risen Jesus. And yet, we believe he is risen. You know, a lot of people would call you a fool. I'd say that you are Naive. How can you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead never to die again and that he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father? And there'd be an argument to all of that historical evidence. It wouldn't quite be enough for you who don't believe. And in fact, and ultimately for those of you who do believe, it's not that you were persuaded with historical evidence. So let me read to you from a secondary source and then the primary source of what has happened. For those of you who believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, here's why you believe that. And for those of you who don't believe, here's how you may believe. And the secondary source I want to quote you from is uh, the Confession of Faith that we subscribe to here, the London Baptist Confession of Faith that was written in 1689. And in the very first chapter, in the fifth paragraph, they 
address and answer this question. Why do we believe in the resurrection? Why do we believe what we read about in the word of God? And I want you to listen to their answer, and then we'll read the scripture, which is the primary source. The testimony of the church of God may stir and persuade us to adopt a high and reverent respect for the Holy Scriptures. That means the testimony of the church, the testimony of Christians, the testimony of your pastor, the the testimony of your mom and dad, other people telling you that it's true, is persuasive. For those of you kids who are here, it is and should be persuasive that your mom and dad, who you love and who you know love you, that they tell you that this is true. Jesus was raised from the dead. This Bible is the Word of God. And that stirs you. And that persuades you. I may present historical evidence in someone else, and that may stir you and persuade you, but that's only part of the answer. Moreover, and now he talks about the qualities of the Bible, the heavenliness of the contents, the power of the system of truth, the majesty of the style, the harmony of all the parts, the central focus on giving all glory to God, the full revelation of the only way of salvation, and many other incomparable qualities and complete perfections all provide abundant evidence that the Scriptures are the Word of God. So the Bible itself is this amazing, powerful book that withstands all the tests and the truth that is in it and the, 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 the consistency that is in it and the amount of years that it took to write this Bible and the amount of authors who wrote it. And yes, it, it, it communicates one complete story and, and, and you look at the historical evidence and even the archaeological evidence and nothing has disproven that this is exactly what it says it is. We could go through all of that. But, that's not it. At the end of the day, that's not the reason you believe. At the end of the day, for those of you who don't believe, that's not going to be enough. Last sentence of that paragraph they wrote. Even so, all that, even so, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority of the Scriptures comes from the internal work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. John sixteen thirteen. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, Jesus says, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. It is the internal work of the Holy Spirit that causes us to believe. 1 Corinthians 2.10 
These things, that is the truths of God, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. So why do you believe? God has enabled you to believe. God has enabled you to believe. I stand before you as a man who believes that the Bible is the Word of God. I stand before you as a man who believes that Jesus was truly raised from the dead. And I don't need to anymore, though I remember when I did, I don't go back and research the historical evidence of this anymore. In fact, honestly, if you ask me, hey, tell me, how do I... How do I know that the Bible is the Word of God? If you ask me that question, I've got to go back to my notes on classes that I taught years ago to remind myself of some of the historical evidences. If you ask me, how do you know, give me some historical evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I'd have to go back in preparation for this sermon, and I had to remind myself of some of the historical evidences that I could pass on to you. Because my answer now is, I, I, I know that this is the Word of God because I know that this is the Word of God. I believe this is the Word of God because it, it is the Word of God. And it just sounds like circular reasoning to you and you want more and you want these out external facts and evidences. But for the Christian, at the end of the day, I believe because I believe. I believe this is God's Word. Well, because it's God's Word. Why wouldn't I believe it's God's Word? I believe that God raised Jesus from the dead because God raised Jesus from the dead. If you believe this, God has made you to believe. He's opened your eyes. He's opened your ears. The scriptures we read, He has sent the Holy Spirit of truth to declare to you the things of God. He has sent you the Spirit to understand those things that are spiritually discerned. And so what do we do as, as Christians now for those who don't believe? Well, we teach them. We teach them. We teach them what God's Word says and we teach it as the truth. And then we, we call people to believe that and we call them to put their faith in Jesus. And then we pray. This was the point for those of you who came to Jason Kenney's evangelism class, the way he described how we evangelize. We, we share the gospel. We tell the good news. We teach people what the scriptures say. We call them to believe it. We call them to trust Christ. And then what do we do? We pray. Because we know they won't believe. No matter how good our evidences are. No matter how much research we've done on the Dead Sea Scrolls, 
no matter how many facts we can bring before them, no matter how well we can dispel all the, the, the inconsist, so-called inconsistencies that are in Scripture, no matter how good a job we do at all that, we know that it's just going to be foolishness, foolishness, foolishness. And it won't be the power of God unless God sends His Spirit so that they would believe. And so there's one more verse, verse 19. And it is the what if. The what if. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, Christian, if the resurrection is not true, then Christ offers you no hope for life after death. And if that is true, then we are a pitiful people. Listen to the verses before, starting in verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we've testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, they have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But then what did Paul go on to say in the verses we've studied this morning? He went on to say that that what if is not true. That what if is not true. Which is why verse 20 begins with the word, but. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied, but. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So in conclusion, one question. Are you in Christ this morning? We end every service here by saying, for those of you who are in Christ, may you enjoy every blessing in Christ this week. Give God the glory all week long. But if you're not in Christ, we always say and call you, turn to Him and be saved. So are you in Christ this morning? Do you, are you actually celebrating something today? Do you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? You've been reminded of that. And you've been reminded of why it is you believe that. And so all praise goes to God. Take comfort. Question 57 of the Heidelberg Catechism says, How does the resurrection of the body comfort you? The answer, Not only will my soul be taken immediately after this life to Christ its head, but also my very flesh will be raised by the power of Christ, reunited with my soul, and made like Christ's glorious body. So be encouraged and take comfort if you are in Christ this morning. And if you are not, if you are not in Christ, 
believe. Believe. This is the truth of God. You are a sinner. And you are in need of being reconciled to God. You are at enmity with him. You are at war with him. And you cannot and may not live this life the way you want apart from him and expect to die and then go to spend eternity with him in heaven. You live apart from him in this life, you will live apart from him forever. So believe this truth that Jesus has come and he has lived and suffered and died and risen from the dead in the place of sinners just like you. So that you could believe, put your faith in him, be forgiven of your sin, be reconciled to God. Believe that. Put your faith in him. Live for him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. God, we thank you for raising your son, our king, from the dead. Thank you that we serve a risen Lord. That Jesus, you have conquered death in our place and you reign. Help us, God, to believe. Help us to love. Help us to trust. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll take your communion packet, we're going to take communion together. If you're visiting with us today, uh, if you're a baptized believer, if you're a Christian who's turned from your sin and placed your faith in Christ, committed yourself to him and to his church, and so you're committed to this church or another one that preaches the same gospel that you're hearing here today, if that describes you, you're welcome to take communion with us. As you get ready to take that bread, I'm going to read to you from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. So if you'll take this bread, which is a symbol of the body of Christ, let's take and eat this together. And now let's take this cup, which is a symbol of the blood of Christ. Let's take and drink this together. Will you please stand again with me? <clears throat> 